0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, managing editor of Bloomberg Markets. My colleague and co-host Tracy Elway is away this week. She's out in the desert uh, and on safari near Abu Dhabi. Uh, So we miss her this week, but we have a special episode this week. Another one of our colleagues is with us. Today, we're going to talk to or. Me, I guess I should say today. I'm going to talk to Lorcan Roche Kelly. He's our uh, handyman, social media expert at Bloomberg Markets, also a uh, expert on the eurozone, the ECB, and most extraordinarily, he comes to us from the small town or village of Six Mile Bridge, Ireland, where he has a farm with cows. And I'm pretty sure he's the only person in Six Mile Bridge who has a Bloomberg terminal. I don't know that for sure, but I'm like 99.9% sure. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the Eurozone these days. There's a lot of tension once again around government and the banks. But before we get to that conversation... I want to uh, talk to Lorcan about how he became uh, a farmer who is also an uh, expert on the ECB. So, Lorcan, thank you very much for joining the Odd Lots podcast. Joe, great to be here. So, Lorcan, let's uh, start from the beginning. There are many people who are experts on the ECB and the Eurozone who also live on an operating farm with cows. What's your background? How did you, where does your story start? Take us from uh, as far back as you'd like to go. I,
1: I, I, suppose, um, I suppose we'll start the bit that people might be interested in, which is um, how I got to be where I am. It's a, I suppose the start of it starts out with a bit of a tragedy in a way that I used to work as an explosives engineer in a mine, which just straight up is the best job in the world. At the end of every day, no matter how bad your day has been, you get to blow up a lot of stuff, <laughs> which is incredibly therapeutic. I think everybody should get to blow something up at some point. It will solve many of the world's problems.
0: What are the kind of uh, skills that you have to have to be an explosive engineer? What does what the job really involve?
1: You have to be able to run really fast. That's the number <laughs> one skill, I think. So it's basically, what it is with explosives when you're um, um, exposing in a mine, you have to be able to design. An explosive blast in a way that it'll blast what you want to blast and leave everything else alone. It's very important that you don't blow up the stuff you don't want to blow up. And it's uh, my, my background important. is engineering, so it's that's, that's kind of spatial development stuff. Like that was kind of what a lot of what, what I was doing anyway.
0: So this was in Ireland. What kind of mining is big in Ireland? What kind um, of mining? And it's
1: uh, base metal, lead and zinc mines. We have one of the biggest lead zinc mine in Europe is in Ireland. It's I think it's pretty much mined out at the moment. It's been there since the 1970s. Got it. All right.
0: So let's take the next step. So then what did you do after? um, So after after, after, in 2007,
1: my my first wife died, and I've left with two children. So I, I, I was in mining, which meant I traveled a lot. So obviously I had to stop that job, come home, look after the kids. And I found myself in a position where I was very time rich. And cash poor. Mm. And if you remember 2007, 2008, there was one event that was dominating the world at the time.
0: I think I remember that.
1: And that, that was the financial crisis. So I was, like I said, I was time rich. So I started looking into this, going, okay, what? I'm naturally curious, I suppose. So I started looking at this, going, okay, what what's causing this? What does it mean? And I found a lot of the coverage I was reading was very samey. And then what I mean is, like, everyone was on the same path, saying the same thing, saying the same, like the euro was going to fall apart. The, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket by gold.
0: So you you but, hadn't studied this before. You don't have a background in economics or finance or anything like that. Uh, not this really, was no. I, of... I
1: did economics at, at, uh, in high school. Right. I was, beyond that, I hadn't done anything with it, no. But...
0: So it was basically you had a lot of time on your hands. Yes. You saw that the world was kind of falling apart. There was a lot of anxiety in Ireland in particular because of how big the banking sector was. Yeah. And so you just wanted to sort of scratch an itch and see what yeah. the heck was going on.
1: Yeah, see what was. And the thing is, like, with the, the... I had the farm as well at the time, but the farm, like, I say, I have the farm, the farm. My father is eight years old this year. The farm is still in his name because Irish people are very funny about farmland. Mm. You never sell land. You never give it away. You have to wait for the generation above you to die before you get it, which sounds very Machiavellian, but that's just how it is. But um, when, I remember when I was growing up, there were was, was five children in my family, five of us in the family, and my mother always said to us when we were growing up, you have to go to college, you have to get a good degree, or you'll end up at the farm. The farm was always the threat. It's the white elephant, the, the thing that nobody wants to have because you're, uh, you're you're kind of stuck. You can't ever sell it. Like, mm. you can't, it is, you've got an asset that's worth money, but you can't liquidate it. It's been the family for twenty five generations. You have to hold it for the next generation. So
0: you didn't go to college, and you ended up with the farm. It, that,
1: that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> yes, I, I was the black sheep, so the black sheep ended up with the cows.
0: That, so what? Uh, what was the? You said you were curious. What was the first thing you looked into? What? Uh, what was the first question you sought an answer to?
1: I think that the first question I saw an answer was, how are Everyone's saying that the Irish banks—you should withdraw money from the, the banks. Everyone should be deposit flights. And my, my first question was, okay, what's the mechanics? I so suppose this is my engineering background. It's like, what's the mechanics that are keeping the banks open? If mm. everyone is taking their money out, shouldn't the banks fall over? Like, how are they not closing down? Because the one thing we didn't have, and we weren't having, were bank failures. Mm. And I was like, nosing around, asking people because, you know, I, I knew nothing, so I was able to ask the really dumb questions that I suppose other people wouldn't like to ask. And I got talking to an Irish economist called David McWilliams, who I ended up actually working for after a while because I ended up being his researcher. And as part of that research gig I was doing, I was finding, I was reading, like I said, I was time-rich. I was reading lots of bank, bank um, annual reports, mm-hmm. all 145 pages of them, just to try and figure out in my own head how this machine that is a bank works. Mm-hmm. And the thing I was finding out with them was, like, the banks are still standing because they're getting liquidity, which is money, from somewhere, and it was to to follow the money, where is this money coming from? Mm -hmm. And as part of that, in 2009, I think it was, I was reading Anglo-Irish banks, which is probably one of the worst banks that (laughs) ever existed in the entire humanity, reading their annual report, and there was a footnote number 17 on page 127, which said they were getting 11 billion euros from the Irish Central Bank as part of a master loan repurchase agreement which is a bit technical, but to, to cut, I, I saw that and said, I don't know what that is, so I'll ask somebody. So I got onto um some of the banks' banks and asked the, the loan purchase agreement, and they said, this is something we used to use in the 1980s when Ireland had its own currency that floated to balance the currency at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And then the next question they asked me was, where, why, where have you seen that written down? And I said, I saw it on Anglo-Irish Bank's 2009 annual report. And then the next thing they said to me was, we didn't have this conversation, and they hung up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's definitely something here. So, and through through find, trying to find out about that, I found out about this thing called emergency liquidity assistance ELA back in 2009. When I think it was it was supposed to be a secret, but they just so they didn't think anyone would ever ask about it.
0: So they literally had this thing buried in a footnote, uh, deep in an annual report. That they didn't really want anyone to look into, but it was sort of it answered the mystery of it how these banks the were staying afloat. It answered
1: the mystery because it was a big part of the balance sheet, and that they had to put it in their balance sheet, the number, and they had to explain where the number came from. So they explained this in a way that kind of, Joe, you know, don't look any further, don't look behind the curtain.
0: Nobody else was poking around and asking these questions besides you.
1: <laughs> Not that I know of. I, I remember I wrote about the ELA in 2010. The and ELA emergency the liquidity, liquidity assistance. assistance. Yeah. And at the time because I, I as first the first point of any investigation is to just go to Google and type the words in. Yeah, right. And, and see what comes up. And nothing came up. Wow. Like the E C B hadn't even published their rules for ELA in a meaningful way at that stage. So that's where I started. So then I because the guys work for David McWilliams, he's a he writes for a broad audience. Yeah. He wasn't particularly interested in is in he knew his audience a would footnote. be interested in the intricacies of central bank's balance sheet. Right. So I started a blog. I started write with this thing, just like Joe. It was aimed at mm-hmm. that was nerds like myself. And that became very popular. And through that becoming popular, then I think um, the FT picked up in a few Yeah, markets. how
0: did people find it? Let's, uh, let's not elide over that step, because I once had a blog, and that's how I got started. But how did people find your blog? Who was reading it?
1: Um, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard it's a lot of this is fortuitous timing. Yeah with um, Paul Murphy at FT Alphaville,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who was starting this thing called Market Live at FT Alphaville, and they still run it to this day, where they'd start talking about the day, and you could comment and say, look, I think this is important. Right. I think one of the things I, saw, I was on it one day, and I said, look, I think this, how Anglo Irish Bank is staying open, is important. And I pointed towards his blog. And Paul then took my blog and republished it mm-hmm. on the Alphaville blog itself. And once you get republished once or twice like right. that, the thing just gets its own momentum, and then you're seen as an expert in. So I think bank balance
0: I started following you on Twitter. It may be late 2009, but that you had really made your name by that point, at least among a very sort of narrow, influential media set, as someone who really knew the ins and outs by that point of yeah. the Irish banking system. Okay, so um, you're on the farm. And through the magic of the internet and blogs and Twitter, you start to establish yourself as someone who's really done the work to figure out what's going on in Ireland. What's next? What's it, what's it, where did where did it lead from there?
1: And the next thing, I'm an American um, company who were obviously looking to get some European coverage. Yeah, tracked me down through uh, via Twitter in the end. They got traded, and offered me a job. I said, would you like to come to New York? We'll follow you over. We'd like to sit down and chat with you. See how we're looking for a, for a view on the whole eurozone that we're not getting. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it's an important point that I made to the guy in the, Don Luskin, who I ended up working for. Mm-hmm. Is there are seventeen? There were at the time, seventeen countries that use the euro area. Mm-hmm. They use use the euro as a currency. There's only one that speaks English. That's Ireland. Mm. A lot of, at, particularly at the time, this is 2009 2010. A lot of the media. I suppose, feed that was coming into New York, particularly the Wall Street, was coming out of London. And at the time, maybe it still exists now, there was a certain bias amongst reportage from London on the euro area. As in, look at that terrible thing over there. It's falling apart. It's going to burn to the ground. Aren't we so never not uh-huh. being in the euro? So all I had to do, well, I don't think all I had to, but I kind of, once I'd figured out how the ECB worked and how they were you know, propping up the entire system through ELA when they had to, say things might get bad but for things to break it's going to be a very it's a big jump from where we are
0: yeah i remember uh you know cuz i was following the eurozone crisis pretty intently back then and i remember how you know it would sort of one there would be the period when everyone was talking about greece and then everyone was talking about spain but i really did appreciate when ireland was in the spotlight simply because it was the only time when i could read the local press yeah. and follow what was happening in the uh, parliament, or the Doyle, as yeah. you call it, because I could actually understand what the politicians were saying. So I really did appreciate that. Yeah. And, I, I uh, think
1: that it's kind of a broader point that I've, I've learned a lot, is that if you can ever get to the source of information, get to the source of information. Because if you read reports, especially on the report, say, on the, the German parliament or yeah. the Greek parliament, it's always through a lens. That was distorted some bit. So and it, it, the
0: U.K. press is not known for its sort of, like, cool, level-headed <laughs> uh, lack of hyperbole, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. They, they have papers to sell, and they're good at selling papers, I guess.
0: So let's sort of skip ahead, and uh, how long did you work for uh, the American firm, and what did you do for I it?
1: finished in 2013, I think. But 2013, I finished. and went to start on my own because I developed a few clients in London. And by having my own client base in London, it was just meant I didn't have to fly to the United States. Oh, that's nice. Once a month. Which and what good. did you
0: do these clients? You told, you gave them your view on what was happening in the eurozone.
1: Yeah, give a view. Give. I think, but the clients particularly were interested in what the European Central Bank because by 2013, the people looked to central banks. I think the big change between 2007 and 2013 is in 2007, 2008 people were still looking to governments mm. to solve the problem. By 2012, 2013, nobody looked to governments anymore. Nobody well, looked that, to Obama.
0: That sounds so quaint, the idea that any, any government could do anything. Now we live in this time when central banks really are uh, all where the action is. So it's, exactly, it's, it's yeah, quaint yeah. to it's, think that less than 10 years ago, we actually might have believed the governments could be competent to fix something.
1: <laughs> yeah, 10 years ago, we were all Keynesians. Look at us now.
0: Yeah, crazy. Now we're all (laughs)
1: monetarists. Now we're all monetarists, God love
0: All right, so let's uh, jump ahead, because now you're our colleague. You work at uh, Bloomberg. Um, You uh, came here, I think, early, just about a year ago. Yes. You do uh, social media. You do some editing. You do some writing. You sort of... Do, you do a little bit of everything. What's your day like right now? I think there's a lot of uh, fascination and curiosity about this person who works for Bloomberg, who lives on a farm with cows. Take me through a day in the life of uh, Lorcan.
1: Okay. Right now, you're, you're at busy time for Lorcan because right now is calving season. Calving season kicked off the end of January, beginning of February. So right now my day, I get up around 6 a.m., go out, check the cows, because, Joe, you know, check in the morning. How
0: many cows do you have?
1: We've uh, I've only got 30 cows, so oh. we have like you know, 30 cows, 30 cows.
0: And what is checking the cows, cows, cows
1: entail? You go, you go up. <laughs> I suppose I'm, I'm talking to a townie here, so I better take this slowly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the first thing you have to do is make sure they have feed and water. So I come in. Once I'm sure they're fed and water, make sure there's no new cows. I come in for 7 a.m., turn on my, come to my office, turn on the terminal, turn on the web, and catch up with what's happened in markets or where markets are going for today. The I've then got about an hour and a half to get everything updated, get the website updated, get Twitter flowing, get Facebook flowing. And then I go back out to the cows again for 20 minutes, to make sure they're okay. Back in again for nine o'clock. And then I start, um, every morning I do this, um, a five things that are happening in the markets today. Our
0: daily uh, newsletter.
1: Right? Post and a newsletter goes out. So about nine o'clock, 9.15, I'll start writing that, get an idea of where we're going while continuing to make sure that all the social media side is updated. Once the five things is published, I'll go for lunch for about 20 minutes. Lunch is actually going back up to the cows make sure they get their lunch, because mm. they sweep for I It's more important. And then come in for the afternoon, work Work at the, the office for the afternoon, around 5 p.m., finish up, back out to the cows then, make sure that everything's okay, Come in, have my dinner, and then normally about half eight, nine o'clock, go back up to go again, just check for calves and stuff like that.
0: Check for calves on a typical day. There's no calves right?
1: on a typical day. There's no calves, but at the moment because we're in calving season, there is, on a typical day there's always the possibility of calves.
0: And uh you live you're you live in a town of a it's six mile bridge, right? So how many people? Where is six mile bridge? How many people live in six mile bridge?
1: And why is it called that? <laughs> six mile bridge is a town of a. About 1,500 people. It's in the west of Ireland. It's in a place called County Clare. It's handily enough, it's 10 minutes away from an international airport. There's an airport in the west of Ireland called Shannon, which means I, it's quicker for me to get to London than it is for me to get to the capital of Ireland because I can drive to the airport to get on a plane to London. It's called Six Mile Bridge because apparently years ago it was six miles from the nearest town of Limerick, which is kind of it's six miles from the nearest place people actually want to be. <laughs> because Dixler is a small little market town. It's got seven pubs, two churches, and two shops. It's that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, our colleague Dash visited you in Ireland last summer, and I think if I recall, he couldn't find your place, and he didn't have cell service, and he just walked into one of the pubs and asked, like, does anyone know Lorcan? And they were able to figure out who he was talking about, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much immediately they knew who he <laughs> was talking about. This is not saying that I'm someone that spent all of my time in the pub. I've just spent... Ten minutes outlining how busy I am all day. Clearly, I have no time for it. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> clearly. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, and in the summer, I remember you told me uh, you ride. You have a tractor, right? And you could just be out there on your tractor on your iPad checking
1: the terminal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, during the summer, sometimes if I do it, sometimes on a long day, I can I can bring my iPad out in the tractor, and um, it's got a wireless signal, not a wireless, but a mobile signal, and I can update Twitter. I can do Facebook from the tractor if I want.
0: I think it makes a lot of people here very jealous of your lifestyle. I think whenever when anyone at the office hears about that, that that's your. Uh, I think that immediately seems appealing. All right, let's um, make the conversation a little more topical, because uh, once again, there's a lot of anxiety about Europe. We've seen some of the big European banks. Their stocks have really been getting slammed lately. Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse. We're starting to see uh, some increases in borrowing costs for some uh, sovereign, for some governments again. Portuguese borrowing costs have been on the rise. Italy and Spain ticking up a little bit. What's going on? Why are people suddenly sort of nervous again in Europe?
1: I can give you five reasons if you want, but to pick the one that I most believe in would be tricky. I think, first of all, if you look at where banks are, if you do like how banks were making money up to 2007 and how banks are trying to make money now are completely different worlds. Hmm. It was basically pile them high and sell them cheap was the way you made money in 2000. Just, it was market share and get, get your margin as much as you can and there's no risk in the world. Right. So, you can trip your profit at the end of every year. Things will blow up as they eventually did but while the going is good, you're making good money. Right. These days, Banks are very, very regulated, so I think they're almost afraid to try new things. The model that they used to have is broken. So if I'm an investor and I look at a bank and say, okay, how is this bank that is this large? I won't mention it, but I say, how is a a large legacy bank going to make money in the next five years? Where is my dividend yield going to come from? I can't see it. Mm. My my, not, not myself, I can't see it, so I don't think an investor could see it. I think that's, but that's not the problem right now. Right now, we are looking at a squeeze. You know, in the last say into 2016, we're five weeks into 2016, and European banks have got killed this year. Yeah, and that's not investors suddenly realize these banks aren't going to be profitable. Are going to have are going to struggle to be prof, as profitable as they were historically. There's something else happening, and what that something else is, maybe investors are resetting their expectations. There was, like, if you looked at 2014, 2015, Europe, the euro area, the bull case was very easy to make on it. Mm. But there comes a point, as always, investors, where you have to, what investors say, okay, show me the money. Mm. And that point, we haven't got to that point. So investors may be just resetting their, their ideas. So do you
0: think that the, de- I mean, I this is a debate that's going on, and a lot of people say, the difference between now this bank sell-off and, say, the bank sell-off we saw in 2008 is not so much about these banks are going to have these gigantic losses that render them insolvent, or it's not about that they're going to have some liquidity run. It's just that people don't like the business model. And so between the regulation, the lack of robust upside, people are just saying, eh, these aren't very exciting businesses to be invested in.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a lot of it. I think that, but there has, there is something more because if you look at the sell off that's happening in Europe, it's it's a broad based sell off. Yeah. So it's like we don't like your business model, and also we don't like the expectations for the economy in which you're trying to do business.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You've got that double bindy there. You've then on the fringes of all that, you've lots of other things going on. You've got investors suddenly realizing that cocoa bonds, contingent convertible bonds, yeah. are actually convertible if the contingency arises.
0: So this is a uh, sort of a unique class of security that's only been around since the crisis. It kind of looks like debt. It kind of looks like equity. But the idea is that this is uh, these are investors who had piled in, getting uh, a- above market yield. And are now starting to realize that there's no such thing as a free lunch and as these uh, banks struggle with profitability that they could get clipped.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the I think that anything that makes investors nervous in a place where they're not particularly keen on being invested, in, anyway, they'll yeah. look to get out. So if you see these cocoa bonds start to look like they're going to be converted. So the cocoa bond is a bond that pays seven percent. So you've got your bond that's Trade the power and you get paid seven percent. That's right. sweet. Absolutely, it turns into equity. You're yeah. a bond, um, bond investor. What a, you don't want to be holding equity in a bank. And also, at the point where it converts into equity, you're holding equity in a bank that's had a massive equity squeeze that needs to raise capital quickly. So you're getting equity in a bank that you'd never buy. Yeah. So that, that's a lot. But again, that's what cocoa bonds are. That's what they're supposed to do. But that's they're
2: new,
0: they're so there, it, people didn't have much experience with them. Perhaps yeah. didn't know how to model
1: them. Um, perhaps yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm not buying that one, but perhaps. Yeah. And the other thing, that I think that's important is um, the if you look at commodity assets, yeah. oil, metals. Oh, yeah, they will great. ignore gold, but oil, and metals, they have got hammered, and in the last 14, to 18 months, they've just had a disastrous time, and that is one of these things that just grinds down earnings, grinds down profits, and grinds down. Right the circulation of, what, for want of a better phrase, petrodollars in the world. Yeah. So if you've got a large sovereign wealth funds, and there are lots of very large sovereign wealth funds that have very large equity holdings, and we saw this, um, if you look at the Norwegian Exo um, Fund, right. it is huge equity holdings. A lot of the Gulf funds have equity holdings, and a lot of those equity holdings are in financial stocks. That There has to be a point where these governments say, okay, rather than putting our own people under too much pressure by cutting our budget too much, we're going to spend some of our rainy day fund. And that means liquidating assets out of the rainy so day
0: So basically, during the boom times of oil, you had these governments like Norway, Saudi Arabia, and others. They built up tons of cash because oil was so high. They went out and bought all these assets. And among the assets that they owned were financial stocks around the world. Now that oil has been plunging, these government budgets are under strain. These governments are then deciding that it might make sense to sell down some of their assets, as you say, liquidate part of their rainy day fund, and this is putting pressure on everything. But because they were so heavy into financials, that could be one aspect driving the selling here.
1: But not even that, – that could be an aspect driving. But also, if I'm a bank investor myself and I'm not a sovereign wealth fund – I look at these sovereign wealth funds and I think, okay, the next thing they're going to do is sell their their financial shares. I'm going to sell mine first to get ahead of them. So
0: even if they're not selling yet, people want to get ahead of that. People want to get ahead of that. So, Lorcan, in addition to the tensions at the banks, one thing that we've been seeing lately is some renewed pressure on governments. We've been seeing in the last week, Portuguese borrowing costs have been rising. Is this a return to the same problem, the sort of Rebuke of austerity, ongoing political problems that hasn 't really been solved in the eurozone
1: I think to an extent it can be seen as that, but I think like as always, this time it 's different yeah, right um, investors are better at differentiating between different European countries, euro area countries, the way it used to be again in two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven was you bought German sovereign debt, you sold the periphery that 's Portugal, right. Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Anything on the edge you sold it. If you look at what happened last week, we had um, Portuguese ten year yield at four percent, and with the Irish government Irish debt agency selling ten year debt at 0999 percent yield. So you have a huge spread between two of the former peripheral countries, and that's because investors are saying, Okay, let's just let it's not a Euro problem. It's a problem within these individual mm. countries. In Portugal at the moment, the government there is a socialist government that was elected, and they're came in on a promise of reversing the spending cuts of the previous administration, which is how all socialist governments are elected in Europe, on promises of reversing what the bad guys did last time round. And then they find themselves in a position where they have to implement the policies of the previous government anyway, because as a small open economy in the world, you don't have a huge amount of choice over the policies you implement. Right. You can't go it alone. You can't. It's not like you're the United States who can set policy. Sure, You have to be an economy that can exist as an autarchy in order to set policy. Right. A small, peripheral European state doesn't have that autonomy. In Ireland, at the moment, there's an election campaign going on. There's an election June the 26th of February. And politicians from the entire width of the spectrum of the major parties, from left to right, to tell their policies apart <laughs> is... Incredibly difficult to an outsider.
0: So there's a lot of consensus. There lot is lot not difference. much inclination to change yes. course.
1: The, the, the Socialist Party, I suppose Sinn Fein or the closest thing Ireland has to a Socialist Party, ha- are, have already committed to maintaining Ireland's 12.5% corporate tax rate. So if you're a Socialist and you're committing to maintaining a 12.5% corporate tax rate, you're kind of admitting we can't really have any large policy changes Got because it. we're a small, open economy and the market will just wipe the economy out if they don't like what we do.
0: But in other places, like in Portugal, in Spain, in Greece, there's clearly much sharper ideological divisions between the parties.
1: There are. And if you look at Greece, is a great example. If you look at Syriza being in government now over a year, and when they came in, they were going to tear up everything and start anew, and it would be a socialist paradise. A year in, there are strikes in Greece against the policies of the Syriza government, which are rather bizarrely because it's Greece, supported by the Syriza party (laughs) against the Syriza government. But that's Greece. It's a strange place.
0: Well, Lorcan, thank you very much for uh, joining us from Six Mile Bridge, Ireland, and telling us your story and giving us your perspective on the uh, latest stuff that's been going on.
1: Thanks for having me, Joe.
0: Absolutely. And uh, thank you. That was another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And if you want to follow Lorcan, you should follow him at on Twitter at LorcanRK. Thank you very much for listening.
3: We at Bloomberg are proud of our new and growing slate of original content podcasts. They include Benchmark, a jargon-free dive into the stories that drive the global economy. It's hosted by Tori Stilwell, Aki Ito, and Dan Moss. Odd Lots, hosted by Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, takes you on a not-so-random walk through hot topics in markets, finance, and economics. And each week, Bloomberg M&A reporter Alex Sherman discusses market-moving news about mergers in Deal of the Week. From Washington and points in between, meantime, we showcase the intersection of politics and pop culture with Culture Caucus, hosted by John Heilman and Will Leach from Bloomberg Politics. And then there's Masters in Politics, hosted by veteran TV producers Tammy Haddad and Betsy Fisher-Martin. This biweekly podcast features extended conversations with candidates, campaign strategists, and journalists. You can find all these podcasts on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and any one of your very favorite podcast platforms.